So I wonder, what do you think of when you hear the word ritual? That word ritual, what do you think of? You know, the largest sporting event across the globe is happening right now with, with apparently an estimated 5 billion people tuning into the World Cup, and players along the way have themselves had some rather unusual rituals. So you may know the Argentinian goalie Sergio, an older goalie, and he used to, anyone know what he used to do before the matches? Pee on the pitch. Literally, like a dog, he would mark his territory around the goal before games, and he understood that that gave him success in goal. And he had some remarkable saves and some World Cups, and he accredits that ritual to his saves. Or you can take the NBA player, Jason Terry, who often the night before big games would go to sleep in the opponent's team shorts. Right, so he'd wear the opponent's team shorts to bed the night before, and that was his ritual, much to his wife's common frustration. Right, those are just some of many unusual sporting rituals individuals have had, but of course, societies have their own rituals. So monarchs are crowned with elaborate ceremonies. We think of the growing gender reveal parties and sometimes all the pyrotechnics right, associated with those uh, with those parties and with, with the pregnancies. We think of rituals surrounding what? Surrounding marriage. Rituals surrounding graduation. Surrounding holidays, right? Black Friday is itself a kind of national ritual. Not one that necessarily brings out the best in us, right? But something that is largely celebrated, if you will, every year. Rituals say a lot about us whether it's the consumerism of a Black Friday or whether or not it's the pageantry of a presidential inauguration or the superstitions around a pregame routine. Right? Rituals reveal much about what a people and a society value. So friends, what about ritual as it comes to religion? What does ritual as it comes to religion, what does that have to teach us? Well, that's what we're going to be thinking about this morning as we return in our study in the book of Numbers. We're going to be in Numbers chapters 28 through chapter 30. Let me invite you to turn there now. Again, Numbers 28 through 30. <coughs> Excuse me. Then if you don't happen to have a Bible, we do provide Bibles for you there. A red Bibles in the seat back before you. I think you can find Numbers 28 beginning on page 136. Now, if you're just joining us, Numbers recounts the story of why it took the nation of Israel 40 years to travel across a wilderness that shouldn't have taken them no more than four weeks. And though God had, as we have seen gloriously, what, saved his people from Egypt, and then he led them, and he fed them, and cared for them, and fought for them, and dwelt among them, and promised to deliver them into the promised land, he had done all that, and yet nonetheless they, as we've seen, they rebelled against him there in the desert. And so that first generation that rebelled was condemned to die in the wilderness. They would not reach the promised land. And two weeks ago, we witnessed the last deaths of that faithless generation. And then we saw the, the second census, right? The new census of the generation to come, the generation to follow. And then the promise that Joshua would be the one that would lead the people into the promised land. Well, friends, with that draft complete and with Joshua chosen to be Israel's leader, we might expect at this point in the story that famous battle of Jericho to follow. Right? That's the next thing that we might expect to happen. But it's not what we find this morning, is it? Look down with me to chapter 28, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the people of Israel and say to them, My offering my food for my food offerings, my pleasing aroma, you shall be careful to offer to me at its appointed time. And you shall say to them, this is the food offering that you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs a year old without blemish, day by day, as a regular offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Also a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering, mixed with a quarter of a hen of beaten oil, it is a regular burnt offering. 
which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a pleasing aroma of food offering to the Lord. Its drink offering shall be a quarter of a hen for each lamb. In the holy place you shall pour out a drink offering of strong drink to the Lord. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Like the grain offering of the morning and like its drink offering, you shall offer it as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And we'll stop right there, but if you were to keep reading on, and we'll read a little bit more, it goes on just like that for two whole chapters. Offerings and sacrifices, daily and then weekly and then monthly and then annually, right? This many lambs for this, this many bulls for that, right? How much grain here, how much drink there? This is just repeated over and over again in chapters 28 and 29. And then it's followed by chapter 30, a chapter on vows or promises we make with our mouths. And if you read the chapters this week in preparation, you were again confronted with one of the difficulties of a book like Numbers. Because we're captivated by the stories, right? We're, we're struck by the faithlessness of the scouts when they went out to see the land. Or we're moved by Moses' own exclusion from the promised land. We're, we're captivated by Balaam and by his talking donkey, The problem is those stories don't, in fact, make up most of the book. Instead, much of the book is, well, it consists of stuff like we just read. Much of the book is concerned with what? With rituals and with ceremonies and and the kind of organizational details, tribe by tribe, that often to us just seem dull. They seem repetitive. And if we're honest, they seem utterly irrelevant to us. You know, as Americans and as I dare say our Kansans, We can be, I think, especially disadvantaged when we come to chapters like this because we carry a kind of allergy, a kind of built-in, hardwired antipathy to ritual, to ceremonies that are drawn from the past. So I'm reminded every time I do a wedding or a funeral and I pull out that old 17th century liturgy that I like to use and that Protestants have historically used, and I'm often met with what? With confusion, with blank stares, even with comments like, we don't do that here. If you're honest, even those baptismal questions, right, that Cole asked, or Stephen, I should say, asked earlier, right, they may strike you as odd. Even at the end, right, people standing, taking vows, it might have seemed oddly formal, perhaps even a bit unrelational, maybe even exclusionary, right, members only stand, But friends, rituals reveal values at their deepest level. For those things most valuable, those things most fundamental, most central to a people are always surrounded by what? By ritual. And if you don't understand the ritual, you will never understand the people. Any anthropologist will tell you that. Any missiologist entering into a new society and culture, they will tell you that. And friends, more than half the Pentateuch, right, the first five books of the Old Testament, they are made up of what? They're made up of rituals and regulations, and those are not given to bore us. They're not repeated over and over in order to torture us or to test us and our patience. They are given instead to instruct us. They exist to teach us something about God and what it's like to be in relationship with him. And so what I want us to see this morning is the basic point that ritual reveals relationship. Ritual reveals relationship. It exposes and helps define relationship, namely the kind of relationship God intends to have with his people. And so as we look at these chapters, I want us to note three things in particular about what these rituals reveal about our relationship with God. And I want to look at that under the the sort of the headings of first the the pattern of relationship. So as we look at these rituals, what they have to teach us about our relationship with God, I want to see the, the pattern of relationship. And then secondly, the price of relationship. And then thirdly, the provision of relationship. Right? So we're going to look at the pattern of relationship one, then the price, and then the provision. All right? That's going to serve as our outline. So first, the pattern of relationship. The pattern of relationship. And just heads up, this first point is the longest of the points. So when it's noon, right, and we're still in point one, don't fret. 
I'm kind of kidding, but not really, actually. All right. So the chapter is open, right? 28, verses 1 to 8. We just read them. And what do we have there? We have the daily offering in those eight verses. Verse 4, we read, The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And notice following those daily offerings in verses 1 to 8, what comes after that? Well, notice it's followed by, by monthly, or sorry, rather by the weekly. Verse 9 is followed by the weekly or the, the Sabbath offering in, in 28, beginning verse 9 and through verse 10. And then after the weekly offerings, what do we have? Verse 11, chapter 28, we have the monthly offerings, right? The sometimes called the new moon offerings there in 2811. And then that's followed by the annual offerings, beginning with the Passover offering in chapter 28, verse 16. And then that's followed up by the Feast of Weeks, sometimes referred to as the Feast of First Fruits. So the Passover offerings would have been month one of the new year. And then the Feast of Weeks or the First Fruits would have been around the third month or so of the year. And then you get into chapter 29, you get into the seventh month of the year, the, the all-important seventh month. And what do we have? We've got, well, you've got the Feast of Trumpets that opens chapter 29. Then you have the annual Day of Atonement. Then you have the all-important Feast of Booths or Tabernacles that starts in 29.12 and really goes through the rest of chapter 29. And again, I just want you just to notice the pattern. You've got daily, followed by weekly, followed by monthly, followed by annually, and then the annual festivals are given in chronological order, right? First month through the seventh month. And that's not an accident, right? That's intentional, and that's teaching. It's communicating. What is it communicating? That all of life is to be lived in worship to God. That's what's being communicated. That all of life ought to be lived in the worship of God. Our rhythms, daily, weekly, monthly, annually, lived in worship to God. So Israel, right, we've seen they're a sacred people. God has uniquely called them out. They're living in sacred space and according to sacred time. So in the same way that the people were gathered sort of spatially, remember back in chapters 1 and 2, they're, they're gathered, the tabernacles there at the center with the Levites, uh, chapter 3, and then how are they camped? Well, they're camped like a compass spatially around that tabernacle. God at the center and all the tribes, north, south, east, west, right, around the tabernacle. They're, they're gathered there spatially. Well, here we're seeing how their or lives are organized temporally, right? Every day, every week, every month of every year, given all year long over to God. Well, my Christian friend, that same, those same much of those same patterns and that same principle also applies to us. Right, So just as Israel's day was meant to begin in those opening eight verses, their day was meant to begin and to end with God. Friends, so our days too ought to begin and end with God. Right? Jesus himself, the disciples, the first century church, they all model that practice of beginning and ending days with the Lord. Because, friends, daily fellowship with God is the foundation of a Christian's relationship with God. It's kind of that plain and simple. Daily fellowship with God is the foundation of a Christian's relationship with God. And that's not legalism, friends. That's just the Christian life. It's just how it works. Which means if you claim to follow Christ, one of the most important things you can do each day is to what? It's to start with Christ. To start with his word. Reading meditating, right, setting your compass, aligning your priorities to the priorities of God's Word, and then committing your day to prayer, right, the challenges, the obstacles, the fears, the joys, the things that are set before you, commit those things to prayer and commit others to prayer, right, pray for others around you, pray that they would be encouraged in their walk with Christ, Right, I love the quote I've used before, I think, the, you know, the great missionary Hudson Taylor. He said, do not have your concert first and then try to tune your instrument afterwards. No, begin the day with the word of God in prayer and get first of all into harmony with him. Right? Great principle for us. And then at the end of the day, circle back. 
Reflect on that day. Pray. Even give praise to God. Sing over the day for how it unfolded, recognizing that every sorrow and every joy has come from God's providential hand. But it's not just daily. right? That's not the only pattern, and there's a weekly pattern too. Now, under the new covenant, we don't You don't recognize a Saturday Sabbath, right, a Seventh-day Sabbath like they did under the Old Covenant. But we do have for us in in the New Testament, we do have a Lord's Day. A day when we're called in Hebrews 10 to to hold fast to the confession of our hope, right? To to stir one another up to love and to good works. And how do we do that? By, By not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but to rather give ourselves toward meeting with one another and and doing so all the more, right, until that final day draws near. The Puritans would refer to Sunday as the market day for the soul. I've always loved that expression. I think it captures well how the Christian ought to think about Sunday, a day when the pressures of work and the pressures of vocation and even recreation are to one degree kept at bay. So we have time spiritually to recharge and to renew our own tanks. Now, I don't think that means it's wrong necessarily. It's not wrong to work on Sunday. It's not wrong to enjoy recreation on Sunday as some teach. I don't think that's wrong. But it is a problem if all of our work and all of our recreation on Sunday actually squeeze the Lord's day out of that first day of the week where there is not time to renew and to recharge our own souls, when there's not time to give ourselves to God's word and gathering with God's people. In the words of Matthew Henry, the streams of all religion run either deep or shallow according to whether or not the banks of the Sabbath are kept up or neglected. My Christian friend, time is perhaps the most precious gift that you and I have been given. So don't squander it, but make the most of it by ordering it around God and by ordering it around God's people. And yet notice how the the pattern of relationships, it's not just seen temporally, but it's also seen in how precisely God commands his people to worship him. So look with me to chapter 28, verse 11. Let's look at those monthly offerings. Chapter 28, verse 11. I'll begin reading. At the beginnings of your months, you shall offer a burnt offering to the Lord, two bulls from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs a year old without blemish, also three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil for each bull, and two-tenths of fine flour for a grain offering mixed with oil for the one ram, and a tenth of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering for every lamb, for a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Their drink offerings shall be half a hin of wine for a bull, and a third of a hin of wine for ram, and a quarter of a hin for a lamb. This is the burnt offering of each month throughout the months of the year. Also, one male goat for a sin offering to the Lord. It shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. Now, I'll stop there, and I I hope you heard something of the precision with which God expects his his people to keep these offerings. So it's not just in in the number of bulls and, and lambs and rams to be offered but in the exact amounts of grain that are to be presented with each one of those offerings, right? Three-tenths for a bull and two-tenths for the ram and one-tenth for the lamb. And and those proportions are just going to be consistent as you read through these chapters. And we're seeing again how when it comes to worship, friends, the Lord sets the terms. He prescribes exactly how he wants us to worship him. He doesn't leave it up to our imagination. No, he expressly tells us exactly what, exactly when, and exactly how. Which flies, frankly, in the face of how so many approach God. Because we live in what? We live in this age of kind of bespoke spirituality. Right? Traditional religion and ritual, right? That's all out. But what's 
What's replaced it is not no religion, not atheism, but instead this smorgasbord of spirituality from astrology on the one hand to sorcery on the other. Right? Wiccans are growing. So in a world where the consumer rules, where we have what custom homes and custom cars and custom clothing and, and custom accessories, right? Spirituality's become a kind of lifestyle brand for people. We create our own buffet style, kind of build to order personal religion. And it's a world that's been described where, you know, what's, what's true and what's good and what's right is, is not being driven by things outside of us. What's good and right and true when it comes to religion, that's not given to us through institution. No, instead, modern men today, right, they take that, we take that by personal intuition. Not external institutions, but inward personal intuition. And I wonder if that's how you tend to view spirituality like that, kind of bespoke spirituality, I wonder what you do with texts like this that are so explicit and so specific about how God expects to be worshipped. Because the God of the Bible doesn't say to Israel, doesn't say to Israel, you know what, just get creative when you worship me. No, he says, not get creative. He says, be correct. And he also says, as we already read, he says, be careful. He doesn't give us extra points for originality when it comes to worship, right? For obedience. He's not looking for us to invent new ways to worship him, but rather he's looking for us to be faithful in the ways he has already instructed us to worship him. So if you've come this morning, you wouldn't exactly call yourself a Christian. Uh, maybe you think of yourself as some a spiritual person or a seeker maybe of some kind. If you want to know what true spirituality looks like according to the Bible, right, the real deal, the Bible says look no further than Jesus Christ. Look right there. Jesus Christ is alone the image of the invisible God. The only one who truly speaks God's words and has lived God's ways. If you want to embrace real spirituality this morning, genuine spirituality, then embrace the person of Christ. Embrace his words. Embrace his ways. And then you'll know the real deal. But friends, I think it's also a warning for us as Christians. Because we can subconsciously right, adopt many of the the presuppositions of, of our own contemporary culture, namely that when it comes to our relationship with God, freedom and spontaneity are good, whereas institutions and ritual, right, those things are bad. We can adopt the same mindset of the culture around us. So we can value extemporaneous prayer and, and casual modes of dress and speech as the height of authenticity. And value those things. Highlight those things. More than maybe liturgy, for example. But the Bible doesn't share that kind of same casual approach. Worship is about a right heart. Yes, it absolutely is. But it is also in the Bible about right forms. It's also about right words. It's also about right actions. And notice that pattern is going to hold just as true for Israel's sacrifices as it is for Israel's speech. So look, jump forward to chapter 30, with, if you would. This chapter on vows, I think that's what that's all about. Look to chapter 30. I'm just going to read the first two verses. Chapter 30. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now that right there, I think we have the basic principle for chapter 30. If you make a commitment, keep your commitment. Right? God's people are meant to honor their words. But what happens if another family member perhaps makes a rash vow that could be potentially costly to a family or, or maybe damaging to a relationship with a spouse? 
Well, that's actually what the rest of chapter 30 deals with. So look at verse 3. We read, if a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by a pledge while within her father's house in her youth, and her father hears of her vow and of her pledge by which she has bound herself and says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand, and every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father opposes her on the day that he hears of it, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will forgive her because her father opposed her. Now, just a little note. I think that word forgive would be better translated released. So I don't think we're meant to draw from this that the vow was necessarily sinful and therefore it must be forgiven so much as if the father opposed, she's released from having to keep the vow, right? from the burden of having to keep it. She's not bound to it any longer. And if, we're gonna, if we keep reading, which you could do, you're going to see that married women, right, they fall under the same basic principle. If a husband hears of a vow that his married, his married wife, his, rather his wife has made, and he objects to it, right, then he nullifies it. If he's silent, that silence implies that he's complicit, right, that he accepts it and thus is kept and must be bound by it. And so basically, these laws in chapter 30 recognize authority structures in marriage and in the home, where husbands and fathers are called to lead and to bear responsibility for their families. And these laws, therefore, are meant to actually protect and to preserve the family unit together. To keep a husband and a wife and children, these laws are meant to all keep them and their vows and pledges on the same page. And while you can, we can become engrossed in the particulars of them, just notice the main principle stays the same, right? God's people must honor their words. Jesus says the same in Matthew 5. James says the same in James 5. So Christian, it begs the question simply, what about you? What about you when it comes to your words? Are you known as someone whose word is dependable? Someone whose word is reliable, Or like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, do you tend to make promises kind of with fingers crossed behind your back, hoping no one really notices? You know, is your word as dependable as the city bus system in Rome? Which, if you've never been there, is not dependable whatsoever. You go to a bus stop, you look at the times, and we did this when we were there years ago, until someone said, actually, don't even bother, it doesn't matter, they show up when they feel like showing up. We're like, well, that would actually explain a lot because we have yet to catch a bus on time, right? Is, that, is your word like that? Is it kept merely at your convenience? God's people keep their words even when it's costly. And maybe especially when it's costly. Friend, does that describe you? In business, if you've made a commitment to finish a contract to pay maybe a contractor, finish a job, whatever it might be, do you do it? Or if it becomes too costly, do you look for some kind of loophole in order to back out of it? In marriage, when you stand before others and before your spouse and say, I do, do you mean I do or do you simply mean I do insofar as it's convenient for me? Church member, when you commit to, say, serving in children's ministry, Do you show up? Or in hospitality, do you show up? Are you on time? Or do you regularly just back out, no show, figure someone else can fill your spot? Children, when you tell your parents that you're going to do something, even if it's a small thing, do you follow through and do you do it? Parents, do you, conversely, do you honor your own commitments to your children? Or do you back out reasoning, you know what, they're just kids, they're young, they'll understand, I can make it up later. And friend, if you do that to your children, what do you think you're teaching your children about God? You know, I was reminded uh, of this a few weeks ago, the importance of keeping our words. Many of us have learned that our newest associate pastor, Nick Roark, uh, is an insufferable fan of the Tennessee Volunteers. 
Uh, and early in the year, when they were playing a little bit better than they did towards some of the end of the year, uh, he would regularly show up, right, in his, you know, orange clown suit and, and celebrate the Vols for us. And uh, they were, as some of you will know, and as Nick reminded me regularly, they were, uh, when the college football rankings came out, right, the, the committee rankings first came out, they were ranked number one. They'd had that big win over Alabama, and they're getting ready for their biggest game of the year. I think it was like November, Saturday, November 5th, the game against Georgia, huge game. And so I remember turning to Nick, I'm like, man, what are you doing for the big game? I think it's the first time in like decades they've been ranked like this. They're playing Georgia, biggest game of the year for them, maybe all college football. What are you going to do? And I remember he looked at me and he said, I'll be at the Arkansas game watching Liberty. And I'm like, wait a minute, time out. You've made no apologies for the fact that you are a Vols fan. You are not a Razorback fan. What in the world are you doing at the Razorback game against Liberty? And he looked at me and he just said, well, you know what? Weeks ago, I promised my kids I'd take them to the game. So I will be there with my kids and I will watch that Liberty game, which I think was God's kindness because, as you know, the Georgia game didn't go so well. <laughs> but nonetheless, I just, I remember that struck me. Because I knew how badly he wanted to watch the game. But he knew how much more important it was to his kids and to his word and his relationship with them and how they understood God that he honor his commitment and he take his kids to watch the Liberty game, which i guessing he cared nothing about. And yet, friends, regardless of the cost, right, we're to honor our promises and our word. That's how God's people are to live. They're to honor their words because God has honored his word. Every single one of them. Promises made, promises kept. Isn't that just the message of the Bible? Old Testament promises made, New Testament promises kept. Which means some of us with our words may need to promise a little bit less. Recognizing we can't make everyone happy and we will, if we accept everything and commit to everything, we will fail and will not be able to keep our words. Whereas others of us, once we've made those commitments, we may need just to dig down deep and meet them and follow through regardless of the cost. Because friends, many around us, right, non-Christian friends, family, they won't read the Bible, but they will be reading us, right? They'll be reading our lives. And they will, from our lives, conclude something about God. Friends, what do your words teach the world about who God is? That's all the pattern of relationship. Told you the longest point. Secondly, shorter point, I want us to notice the price of relationship. Secondly, the price of relationship. Friends, there are a lot of animals being sacrificed in these two chapters. And when you read carefully, you come to find these sacrifices are in fact cumulative. So when we read of the Sabbath offering, right, on the seventh day, that offering, look back, chapter 28, verse 10, that Sabbath offering on 28.10, this is the burnt offering of every Sabbath. And then we read that expression, besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. In other words, that Sabbath offering is to be offered in addition to the regular or daily burnt offering and its drink offering. In other words, the Sabbath offering doesn't stand in place of and take the place of the daily offering. The Sabbath offering is in addition to that daily offering. And so if the Sabbath were to fall on the first day of the month, what do you have? Well, you got the daily offering, you have the Sabbath offering, and then what do you, you have the monthly offerings. You have all of those on that one day. And then the festivals and those annual offerings were in addition to the daily and the weekly offerings. And so if you were to add up all of the offerings and sacrifices over these two chapters to be given every single year, you're talking over a thousand lambs, like a thousand and ninety-three or so if I counted right. A hundred and thirteen bulls, thirty-seven rams, thirty goats, more than a ton of flour, and over a thousand bottles of oil and over a thousand bottles of wine, if that's the strong drink. And that doesn't even count the free will offerings and the various sin offerings that individual people could bring. So make no mistake, communion with the true and living God is a costly affair. Right? Make no mistake, communion with this God is a costly affair. Because you see, these Old Testament rituals 
were expressing religious truths visually as opposed to verbally. So visually, what we're seeing is how sacrifice is at the heart of biblical worship. And the daily offering, right, the Sabbath offering, the monthly offerings, the annual offerings, all those are referred to as what kind of offerings? Burnt offerings. And in a burnt offering, the whole beast is offered up. There was nothing that was held back for the priests, nothing held back for the people. All of it went to God. So it's a picture of total commitment. God both demanding and deserving our best. For notice the sacrifices are what to be offered with, with unblemished lambs and fine flour, right? Choice flour and beaten oil as in the, uh, the best oil. And it's this picture, I think, of whole burnt offerings that Paul likely had in mind when he wrote to the, to the church in Rome in Romans 12.1 when he says present, right? Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. I think he had in mind the whole burnt offerings like this. The point being the price of a relationship with God is costly. It will cost us everything we have and everything we are. Nothing short of that will do. So friend, I wonder how does that notion square up with your understanding of Christianity? Because I think many of us like the idea of following Christ without really having to give up all that this world has to offer. Right? We like the idea of maybe having a little bit of both. And so, you know, for most religions out there, that's, that's totally fine. That's entirely acceptable, right? You can have your fat Tuesday all you want. You can indulge yourself all you want. And so far as you follow it up occasionally with Ash Wednesday, right, and repent from all those things that you're trying to remember you did the day before, right? And most religions, that's fine. But Jesus utterly rejects those notions, doesn't he? He says what? Whoever's not 100% for me all the time is against me. Whoever's not willing to what? Deny himself. Who's not willing to take up his cross to the point of even hating family and friends, he says, because of me is not what? He's not worthy of me, Jesus says. So if you were to do some religious comparison shopping between biblical Christianity and other religions out there, the price tag of biblical Christianity is extraordinarily high. And that's exactly the point Jesus was trying to make to the rich young ruler, right? The guy who's nailed it nearly every single way. He follows God's law. He knows God's word. He was faithful in nearly everything except one thing, his possessions. And Jesus didn't say, hey, you know what? You're killing it. You're getting an A plus, like 99%. Excellent. Come be my disciple. I'd be thrilled to have you. It's not what Jesus says. He says, no, you got to sell all you have. That one thing you're holding back, yeah, you got to give that one thing up. It's total commitment or it's no commitment at all. And once you do that, Jesus says, you can be my disciple. And what happened? The man walked away sad. Friends, truly following Jesus demands all of us. Not just Sunday. Not just when we feel like it. Not just when it's convenient. But everything we have and everything we are. It affects how we spend our money, how we spend our time, the friends we keep, the things we watch, how we use our mouth, how we dress, how we think about others, how we talk about others, how we work, right? What time we get up in the morning, what time we show up for work, will we be on time, will we be late, will we pay our bills, will we prioritize Sundays, will we join a church, will we actually submit to ourselves and to other elders as the Bible commands us to, or we hold back and try to play it fast and loose, Will we actually be responsible for other Christians and try to help them or we leave them to themselves or hope someone else will do it, right? Following Jesus entails all of that stuff. Everything we do in life, total commitment, nothing less. That's what's being pictured. And friends, that's always what it's meant to be a Christian. We're seeing that right here. Is that your understanding of Christianity? Or have you bought into some knockoff brand? A cheap version merely substituting is the real thing. Because notice all these sacrifices, they're also a really sobering and powerful picture of how the, the wages of sin is death. 
Because buried in these offerings, we find a continual refrain to a male goat as a sin offering. So back in chapter 28, if you look there, the monthly offerings beginning in verse 11. Notice how those monthly offerings end, verse 15. We read it for the first time here. Also one male goat for a sin offering to the Lord. It shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. Or the Passover offerings. Look at what's nestled there in and amongst all the bulls and rams. Chapter 28, verse 22. Also one male goat for a sin offering to make atonement for you. Or the Feast of Weeks in there nestled in, 2830. What do we read again? But one male goat to make atonement for you. Also the Day of Atonement, chapter 29, verse 11. Or then the Feast of Booths. What do we find on the first day of that great festival, 2916? One male goat for a sin offering. And then the second day, 2919, one male goat for a sin offering. And then the third day in 2922, the same thing. And the fourth day and the fifth day and the sixth day and the seventh day. And then we get to the, the eighth day. So recognize we can sing just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And we can sing that, but reflect for a minute on what that means. To bring a whole animal and then to have to, to kill it and to skin it and to chop it up, and then to have it burned, your hands and clothes stained with blood, the smell of that burning flesh caught in your hair and in your nostrils. Right, friends, that's a wholly different matter to actually do it as opposed to merely sing of it. Because you see, sin doesn't just magically go away. It doesn't just disappear. It must be paid. Well, by whom, right? Who will pay for it? Well, that's what so many of these offerings are about. They were to be, as we've read, right, unblemished offerings, as imperfect offerings, because our sins required a perfect substitute. So every time a sacrifice would come and the priest would lay his hands upon the animal, symbolically transferring the sins of the people to the animal, and transferring the sins upon the animal, and then that animal would be led away to be slaughtered, And the people witnessing that were all meant to think one thing. As they watched that animal go to be slaughtered after the priest had put its hands on it, they were meant to watch and think one thing. That could have been me. Better yet, that should have been me. And the whole thing consumed by fire. And it begs us to ask that same question. As that happened over and over and over again. My friend, who, or what maybe, has died for your sins? Who has borne your sins in your stead? Do you have anybody, anything you think that has done that? Recognize that's exactly the Bible says why Jesus came. He came as what? The Lamb of God, John 1, to take away the sins of the world. He came as that sacrificial lamb. He came, Jesus did, as that perfect substitute. And though he had no sins for which he would have been condemned to die, no sins that he was guilty of, he chose to die a sinner's death. He chose to be nailed to a cross. As John said as he led us in that prayer, a child could have led him because he willingly gave his life up. A life of infinite value and infinite worth. And as we read earlier in Hebrews 10, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never, as in finally, take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. How can we rest? Because, as as Stephen said, Christ didn't rest until he sat down and completed that work, finished Price was paid on the cross and then rose from the grave as proof that God had accepted that sacrifice, that Jesus had conquered sin and death. Friends, only Christ can bear the sins of the guilty. Only he can present to you as unblemished and holy before God. So have you repented of your sins and trusted in this Christ? 
Or are you still hoping? Are still you still searching for another way? There's not another way. There's Jesus or there's no way. And that's what we're meant to see here. Which brings us thirdly and lastly to the provision of relationship. Friends, the provision of relationship. For all these sacrifices, over a thousand lambs alone each year, right? The tons of flour, the cases after cases of wine and oil. It begs the simple question, where is it all going to come from? Remember, Israel is living in the wilderness. They don't own vineyards and olive orchards. They're not just a walking zoo of lambs and bulls and goats and animals like this. They have none of these things that they're supposed to offer up to God. Thousands of lambs, they don't have any of them. So where are they to get all these things? Friends, God's going to have to provide them. God will have to provide them, and he will provide them when he gifts the land to them. So recognize embedded in all this talk of sacrifice and offering and commitment is the promise that God himself will supply everything the people will need. Friends, that is a crucial lesson we must know about God. When he commands, he provides. The lambs, where will you get those lambs? God's like, don't worry, I got that covered. What about the bulls and the rams, like the most expensive and valuable of the sacrifices? God's like, don't worry, I got that as well. Well, the fine flour, the cases of oil and, and wine, he's like, yeah, again, yep, don't worry, I got that covered. Friends, he never requires of his people what he himself won't supply for his people. Perfect holiness, Jesus is like, don't worry, I got you covered. But I don't feel like obeying. No, I know that. It's why I'm going to replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. I'm going to write my word in your hearts and you will desire to obey me. But what about temptations when it gets really hard? Yeah, not to worry. I'm going to provide a way of escape. You'll be able to endure under it. But what about when life is so hard? Life gets wearisome sometimes. I know. It's why I've said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know, but my parents, my friends, right, my family, they may all reject me. He's like, no, I know, that's going to happen likely. But it's why I've adopted you, and I've made you sons of the eternal king, and I've given you brothers and sisters and new fathers and mothers, and you can have a new community and family of people in my church, and you can be loved and accepted there. But how do I know I'll make it to the end? How do I know I'm not going to fail and stumble and you'll just leave me along the way? Well, because I'm the good shepherd of the sheep. And I will lose not one, none for whom the Lord has given me. And the good work that God promised to complete in you, yeah, that he's begun, yeah, he'll, he'll do it, he'll finish it. And just to assure you of that, just rest assured, what has he done? He's given you the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing that inheritance that one day you will wake it and he will not leave you. So you mean, God, it's all worth it? All the striving, all the fighting, all the, all the laboring? Absolutely. I've gone ahead of you to prepare a place for you, a real promised land. Well, there's no more crying or mourning or tears or pain. A place of true rest, a place of true peace where we will all gather together with a glorious feast before God for all eternity. Friends, all those promises God has already supplied for us in Christ. It's what's pictured there, in fact, in the greatest of festivals, that Feast of Booths, or what's sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles, beginning in chapter 29 and verse 12. We see it begin right there. For notice, while the Passover is going to get nine verses and and the Feast of Weeks get five verses. The Feast of Tabernacles or Booths gets 26 verses. And this festival was meant at one level to point backward. So to remind Israel of what it was like when they used to have to live in sort of tabernacles or tents, like these portable dwellings, and they had the tabernacle in the wilderness. Well, this feast is meant to remind them of that and what God had done from delivering them from that. But it's also prominent. 
this feast is not just in the fact that it's 26 verses, but just the sheer amount of animals sacrificed. So look at 29.13. What's to be sacrificed on the first day of this feast? And you shall offer up a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Thirteen bulls from the herd. Two rams. Fourteen male lambs a year old. They shall be without blemish. And their grain offering, a fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each of the thirteen bulls, two-tenths for each of the two rams, one-tenth for each of the fourteen lambs, also one male goat for a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. Right? All that is to continue for seven days. The same number sacrifices on every day except the number of bulls drops by one. So it goes from 13 bulls, minus 1, now to 12 bulls, and then 10, then 9, then 8, and then down to verse 32. On the seventh day of the festival, we get seven bulls, but all the other sacrifices are the same. So there are more bulls and more rams, again, the most expensive animals, being sacrificed in this festival than the whole rest of the year combined. So while this feast was, yes, meant to point backward, it also pointed Israel forward to that promised land and to their great abundance and blessing they will know and enjoy with God a glorious meal. This festival held forth that promise of a glorious feast, what it will look like for God and his people to dwell as one. And so too, friends, every time we gather, like we are now, Every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we proclaim that same hope and that same glorious day, right? Where congregations ne'er break up and Sabbaths have no end. Friends, that's the hope Jacob, in his own testimony this morning, that's the hope he professed. That's the hope that we're about to celebrate here just a moment in baptism. Baptism, which is what? But another ritual, that depicts for us visually what it means to be in relationship with God. For as these chapters have shown, ritual reveals relationship. The pattern of the relationship, all of life, daily, weekly, monthly, year after year, wholly given over to God, where our worship is also backed up by our words. That's the pattern And then the price of relationship, nothing short of absolute and total commitment. For there is no genuine communion with God without commitment. No relationship without ritual and responsibility. And then there is, as we've seen, the provision of that relationship. The promise that everything God demands of his people, he will supply for his people. And he is even now preparing for his people their place of eternal rest. Friends, the only question left is do you have a relationship with this God? Will you one day feast with him? 